On uh, Wednesday, I got invited to a like a pastor's meeting by some other guys, some of the pastors at Riverstone. Riverstone's church in West Cobb that we um, were planted out of, and the senior pastor over there, his name's Tom Tanner, he invited me to a meeting. There's a guy who's um, from the Atlanta area, I think, and he's renting the Civic Center for a few days at the end of May to kind of have some revival meetings. And so he invited some of the local pastors to get together so he could kind of, I guess, tell everybody what was going on. And I kind of had a stereotype in my mind going in of how this meeting would go, and it went exactly like I thought it would. So we get there, this church off of, I don't know, somewhere in Atlanta, off of 285, and there's maybe 50 or 60 people, I don't know anybody, except for the four guys who I went with. That was uh, Terry Cantrell, who's on staff at Riverstone, Martin Icewinder, who's also on staff there, Tom Tanner and, and me. And I didn't know anyone else there, and so we kind of we couldn't decide if we wanted to sit on the back row or not. So we sat about four rows from the back, and this guy came up, and he started talking, um, just kind of sharing some experiences he's had at some meetings uh, over the past month or so. He's just talking about these different things that he's seen and experienced, and it kind of has a pep rally-ish type atmosphere. There's lots of you know yelling back and forth between him and the congregation, and I had actually woke up early on Wednesday to pray, so I'd be ready for this meeting, because I know how I am, and I tend to be um, critical, so I'm, I'm there, and I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that, I'm going to engage what's going on here, so he's saying, raise your hand, and I'm raising my hand, and he's saying, repeat after me, and I'm repeating after him, and putting my hand on my heart, and saying these things, the only thing I don't do, at times there's spontaneous, everybody stands up, I don't. Our little road doesn't stand up. We're the only ones that don't, but we're in the back, so it's okay. So all these things are going on. About 25 minutes into it, I think, you know, I need to keep my eyes closed. So I close my eyes so I don't see all of the stuff that's happening and all of the shenanigans. My eyes are closed, and I'm just, Jesus, where are you in this? I don't want to miss you. What's going on here? And then maybe, so that's 25 minutes, 25 more minutes after, you know, I've been listening to him. There's a, this kind of, he's kind of whipped everybody into a frenzy, and um, he's yelling, and people are yelling back at him, and someone comes forward for, I guess, prayer or something in the middle of his message, and um, he puts his hand on their head, and they fall down. I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting where people do that, where people fall down. Some people call that being slain in the Spirit or resting in the Spirit or whatever. It's biblical. It's okay. There's stuff that happened. Uh, Jesus when he's being crucified, when he's about to be arrested in John, you see this picture where they say, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. And everybody falls down like, that's okay. If God can break trees, he can knock a person down. And I don't have a problem with that. So this, this, this guy falls down and then there's this mad rush to the front. And the front is about the size of our front. So there's maybe 50 or 60 people who come forward. And the guy who's doing the ministering has two um, like associates who get behind all the people he's praying for because they're all falling down. And I'm thinking, I'm still on the back row, and now my eyes are like kind of like this, and I'm looking, and I'm thinking, all right, this is, a, this is where I knew we were going. And so it's, what do I want to do? I can stay back here in the back row, or I can go forward. Now, you know, I said I was going to give this guy a shot. I was going to fully engage. So I go forward, and I go to the right side, because that's where he is. And there's a guy next to me who apparently the minister knows, and he says, do you want the fire, or do you want the touch? I don't know what the difference is. And the guy says, I want everything. So he has, come here. He has two friends, and he has them. I know what's 
He has them. So he, so this guy's next to me. No, he has him stand up and he has his two friends get next to him and he leans him back and the dude, seriously, this is not an exaggeration, two yards away from him, runs and does a chest bump just like that on the guy. Flying chest bump into him. This guy falls down and kind of growls like a bear and then whatever. He got both. So the guy next to him, do you want the fire or the touch? And he says, I think, the fire. Do y'all know what a DDT is? I'm not, do you know what a DDT? Do y'all never watch wrestling? He gets him in a DDT, which is like this. And if it was a DDT, I would drop and then I would be the world champion of the wrestling federation. But what he does, he gets him like this, elbows, atomic elbows on his back. Every one of them, bam, just like Emerald, bam. Bam! And the guy that you sit out. And the guy seems to be loving it. And I wrestling with Jesus. And so that's this that's what this guy's doing. And I'm next. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out the answer to this question. Do I want the fire or the touch? I don't want both for sure. I don't want a chest bump. And I don't want to get DDT'd. And so I'm wondering what the safe answer is. Lucky for me, he doesn't see me and he goes to the other side. And I think, all right, I can say I, I tried. God, I was there. You just chose to make this guy pass by me. But I didn't. So I go around to the other side where he moves back and there's another person who's getting elbowed. Several other people. No one else gets chest bumped. This one person, I guess, was a close friend. So he actually does, he prays for me. He doesn't ask what I want, so I didn't have to answer that question. He puts his hand on my head and he prays, and um, uh, it's it's actually pretty good. At the end, he he pushes me a little bit. I didn't fall down. I wasn't going to. He pushed me a little bit, but other than that, it was good. And I was and I left thinking, all right, this is Genesis 18. We'll come back to that. <laughs> when the men got up to leave, there are these three guys that visit Abraham. Two are angels, and one is the Lord. Some people say it's Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus who came. But it's it's God. So th- when the men got up to leave again, three guys, two angels and God, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away, those are the two angels, and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you, not, will you, the judge of all the earth, not do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, God said, I will not destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? God said, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he replied, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? 
God answered, I will, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? God said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. We've been talking for the, about the past five or six weeks or about uh, God forming us into the image of Jesus. We said that's God's overall, excuse me, overall goal for all of us as people. It's to conform us into the image of Jesus. He wants us to look as much like Jesus as possible before we die. We've used kind of that picture of the vase, and God's the potter, and he's shaping us, and we're the clay, and our major responsibility is to respond to God. We need to hear his voice. And we've talked about several tools that we give God that he uses to shape us. We've looked at giving. We've looked at worship. And today we're going to look at prayer. Prayer is another tool that we give to the Lord that he then uses to shape us. Now, there are lots of books on prayer and seminars and conferences. There's all this stuff where you can really get into the intricacies. We're not going to do any of that. Um, Basically, what I want to say is pray. Just pray because it works. Prayer is something, it's it's a means of grace, and that's a channel that God uses to work in our life. But it kind of is a double means of grace because it's not just a channel that God uses to work in our life. It's also a channel he uses to work in the world. So if you want to become more like Jesus, you pray because it will make you more like Jesus. And it will make our world more like what God desires for our world to be. The main point, I think, of this whole story with Abraham and God, which is a little weird for us, to be honest. The main point of that whole thing is we get to play. We're a part of the family business. God is working in the earth, and we're part of the family, and he brings us into the boardroom, or he brings us into the kitchen, wherever decisions are made, God brings us in. Not just so we can know ahead of time what's going to happen, so we can actually have influence over what's going to happen. That's hard for some of us to grasp, because God's omniscient, and he's omnipotent, and he's sovereign, he's all these things, and what are we, and how do we influence him, and the Bible says God doesn't change his mind. The story says we have influence over God, that he includes us in what he's doing. So anyway, that's what I want to talk about. And maybe for us, the thing to get in our mind today is just like God can use a chest-bumping, elbow-dropping, kind of weird person to work, he can also use us. He works through people. And we don't have to be perfect. And we can have some of our flesh or maybe even a lot of our flesh involved. And God will still use us if we say, I'm willing. And that's, I think, probably the second major point of this story. Abraham's willing to be you. He's willing to pray for this city. And so God responds to him. This dude that I saw on Wednesday, for whatever with all of his histrionics, the Lord did use him to work in some people's lives that day. And he'll use us as well. I was looking at this story, and and probably the thing that jumped out at me was the picture of prayer, the the power, I guess, and the privilege. Again, God is kind of inviting Abraham in. You see God having this conversation with himself or with these two angels. He's saying, I can't not tell Abraham what I'm... i got to tell Abraham what I'm going to do. I have to tell him what's going to happen. This is what I'm doing in Abraham's life. He's got to know what's going to happen. And again, God doesn't just tell him. It's not like he just gets to know before everybody else. He gets, you know, God leaks the story to Abraham before he actually does this work in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham actually has 
influence over what God is doing. That's kind of the power of prayers, that we have influence over God. And the issue a lot of us, again, have is, well, how does, that, how does our influence affect God's sovereignty? If God already knows everything, and if God's all-powerful and all of that stuff, how do our prayers influence Him? We think, well, maybe this is this big game, but we all know Sodom and Gomorrah did get destroyed. There weren't ten righteous people, there were six. And we wonder, well, maybe God knew that there were only six, and so it was okay for Abraham to ask for 50 because God was still going to destroy it, and 45, he was still going to destroy it, because God knew there were only six, and he knew Abraham was going to stop before he got to five, so God wouldn't have to change his... And we do all these kind of mental gymnastics to figure out what's going on here, when really what's going on here is God saying, we're making a decision, and Abraham, you have a part to play. You have a part to play in this decision. For some of us, that means demeaning to God. That's bringing God down too many notches. It's making him too much like one of us. God doesn't decide things in committee. He just makes decisions, and they're always right and good and just and perfect, and maybe. But what this says is he does. He invites us into the kitchen or the boardroom. God is not threatened by us at all. He doesn't have to kind of flex his muscles to prove who he is. He's very secure in his identity. And we don't threaten him at all. And the reason our prayers have influence is because God has said they will. He set things up. When he created the world, he said, I'm going to set things up so that people can influence me. And that's why people influence him. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him and the way he set up the world. It's arrogant for us to say no. Because he said yes. We don't have to fight necessarily for his reputation. He's willing to say, you guys can influence me. So if he's willing to say it, there's no reason for us not to. Again, it's, it's arrogant of us to not take him up on the offer or to criticize the way he's created the world. Like, that's his economy. He said, people will influence me. That's the only reason why. The, I had a professor one time, and he kind of said, if you think of God as being omnipresent, he kind of had to tighten his belt to create the world because he's everywhere. So he had to create space for us. And the same thing is true in terms of how he runs the world. He created space for us to have a part to play. He could have not. He could have said, I'm never going to ask you. You guys can't influence me at all. You're down there and you're peons and I'm up here and I'm great and you don't have any influence. Just live your life and die. That's not what he said. He said, I'm going to invite you guys into a relationship with me, and then we're, you're a part of the family business. There's things that need to happen, and I'm going to ask you about those things. And I'm going to allow you to ask me about those things and to get involved in those things. It's all on him. We cannot like the way he set it up, but it's the way he set it up. And it's not demeaning to him because it was him. He chose to limit himself. There's nothing outside of God that limits him. He chose to limit himself. So we kind of have to move past the, well, doesn't God know everything and do everything and how do my prayers work? They work because he said. Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14 are kind of the classic um, picture of this. Let me flip over there um, real quick. This is God speaking to Solomon after Solomon has dedicated the um, temple in Jerusalem. He said, this is God talking, When I, God, shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn, for their, turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal, heal their land. That's an if-then statement. It's conditional. If you'll do this, then I'll do this. God set that up. That's him talking. And he's saying to you guys, 
when these things happen, if you'll pray, then I will act. Which you can logically conclude, if you don't, then I won't. He set that stuff up. That's God limiting himself and saying, I want you guys to be a part of this. This is your part. If you'll pray, then I'll act. Prayer is not giving God information that he doesn't already know. It's an invitation for him to act in our life. Prayer is an invitation to action. It's not a giving of information. And that's how he has set things up. So there's a power and a privilege to prayer there. I think also what you can see from this story um, in Genesis is the basis of prayer. Abraham says in verse 25, far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? The basis of our prayer is God's character. What Abraham is saying is because you're the judge and you always do what's right, it's not right to to punish righteous people with wicked people. You wouldn't do that, would you, righteous judge? He's not saying, well, they're really good guys over there, or that's not fair, or you're being mean, or I've got family over there. He's saying, you, it's, it's about God. He's basing his prayer on God's character. Listen to this. God, would you heal Jane? She's a good person. She loves you a lot. She, her family would fall apart without you. She has a lot of good left to do on the earth, so would you heal her? That's saying, God, would you heal Jane because she deserves to be healed. Versus, God, would you heal Jane? You say repeatedly that you're compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Would you demonstrate that by healing Jane? You say that if we're sick, we should have elders lay hands and pray. We're doing that. We're doing our part. Will you do yours? It's completely different. We're both asking for the same thing. One person is asking for Jane to be healed because Jane's a good person. It's based on Jane. The other person is asking for Jane to be healed because God is a healer. It's based on God. Now, he, who knows how he answers either of those prayers. But this one is on solid ground because it's based on God's character. This is on shaky ground because it's based on Jane's character. And as wonderful as Jane is, her character is not as good as his. So if you're going to pray, base your prayers on God's character. There are things that God says about himself and things God says he will do. Well, hold him to it. That's what Abraham did. He's holding God to God's character. You're the righteous judge, so be righteous. It's not righteous to destroy righteous people with wicked people. That's not what a righteous judge would do. And Abraham's right. That's not what a righteous judge would do. And so that's the basis of this bargaining back and forth. It's not based on the fact that Abraham's nephew Lot is in Sodom or, and his family's there. It's not based on the fact that they're even good people. It's based on God's character as a just judge. And so I would encourage all of us, as we pray, base your prayers on God's character, not yours. Don't base it on the circumstances. Don't base it on what you want to see happen, what I want to see happen. Let's base it on God's character. It's solid ground. Who knows how he's going to answer? But this is solid ground. When you're saying, God, you're loving, therefore, do, da, 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 da. God, we know that you're a healer, so. God, we know that you have a heart for people who don't yet know you, so. God, we know you hate wickedness, so. Those are, that's solid ground. Because you're asking God to answer prayer based on what he's already revealed about himself. You're asking him to be God. Which he loves to do. The basis of prayer is God's character and God's posture. I've wondered about this story before. I don't know what your picture of God is when he and Abraham are bargaining. I'm, we've talked before. I'm totally non-confrontational. Um, I've been married for almost 11 years. This is not an exaggeration. This makes me a huge sissy. For the first 10, 
anytime something had to be returned, my wife would return it because I didn't want to offend the people behind the desk. They didn't sell it to me, but I don't want to return it because I don't want to make anybody unhappy. And somehow this is a slight to you that this shirt doesn't fit me or whatever. So Misty returns everything. I'm not in, I can't do confrontation at all. And so I read this and I'm like, I couldn't watch this if it was in front of me. I would have had to leave and walk away if I saw Abraham and God going back and forth because I'm feeling the tension in the room. And I'm wondering, like, is God rolling his eyes? Is he tapping his foot? Is smoke coming out of his ears? What, what is he, what's his posture to Abraham? Is he put out with him? This verse 22 says this. In your Bible, it says the same thing. Then men turned away and went towards Sodom. This part. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. There's actually a tradition that the original reading of that is, but the Lord remained before Abraham. And the scribes changed it because it made God too human. That goes way, way, way back. That hardly ever, ever happens that the scribes would change what was handed down to them. But it made God look too human to say, but God remained before Abraham. That's, that is Abraham's, it's Abraham's meeting, would be what that said. Abraham, it's your meeting. What are you going to do next? And so they changed it because it made God too human and they changed it to Abraham stood or remained before the Lord. If that original line is correct, and I think it is, that the Lord remained before Abraham, think about the picture of that. God's not tapping his foot and smoke's not coming out of his ears and he's not put out. He's waiting expectantly for Abraham to engage him. Okay, Abraham, it's your meeting. What are you going to do? What are you going I'm here. Let's talk about this. We're around the table together. What are you bringing? And then Abraham goes and begins to bargain with the Lord. That's a different picture than the one sometimes I get with God when it comes to prayer. Rolling his eyes, tapping his foot. Are you done yet? Are you going to ask for that again? For goodness sakes. That's not the picture you get here with him and Abraham. The Lord remained before. Think about that. Tomorrow, whenever, I don't know when you pray, but imagine that it's the Lord remained before Ernie. The Lord remained before James. The Lord remained before Brooks. That God is sitting there. It's your meeting and he's waiting on you to say something. He's not put out. He's not anxious. He's not ready to go to the next thing. He's not rushing. You're not bothering him. He wants you to engage him on these. Real, this is a big deal. He took out two cities. You can read chapter 19. They're done. Six people. Well, five. Lot's wife turned into salt, so she doesn't really count. Five people he saves. The rest of them are wiped out. This is a big deal that God and Abraham... This isn't what's the color of the carpet going to be. Do these cities get saved? Those are the types of issues that he's saying, will you engage me on? Will you engage me on these type of issues? What he's doing in your family, what he's doing in your neighborhood, your school, what he's doing in your job, what he's doing in our community, what he's doing in our nation and world. He wants us to engage him on that. The Lord is standing before us. He's remaining before us saying, you guys are my children. This is one of the ways you exercise your rights and privileges as my children is through prayer. So will you? I'm remaining here waiting. I've said, if you will, then I will. So will you? That's not a guilt thing. I hope that's an inspiring thing. Your prayers do matter. They're not nothing. They don't hit the ceiling. They don't get lost in the heavens. He hears them all, and he's remaining before us, waiting to engage us on these things. And if we pray, I think, rooted in his character, we'll see things 
happen. A little. This is a total tangent. Some people, well, what about prayers that don't get answered? I don't know if you've ever, Garth Brooks, what, thank God for unanswered prayers. There's no such thing as that. Prayers are yes, no, or wait. He answers everything. It's just sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait, and those things to us seem unanswered. And that, we talked a little bit last week about when your prayers, when you're not seeing things happen, I think there may be two things going on. One, I think sometimes God answers the prayer of our heart and not the prayer of our mouth. Romans 8.26 says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. So in my mind, sometimes that's we're praying things. What's coming out of our mouth, the words, aren't really what's in our heart. And the Holy Spirit is translating to God back into our heart language. Maybe when you were, I can remember uh, talking to some folks when they were younger, maybe high school, junior high, you know, and they're praying for a relationship. They want to be married and they're praying for this person. And God, if it's her and I want her, and that's what's coming out of their mouth is Nancy. Nancy, and that's what they're praying with their mouth. What they're praying for with their heart is their spouse. And God doesn't give them Nancy because Nancy's not their spouse. It's somebody else three or four years down the road. That prayer for Nancy was really the deeper level. The heart prayer was for my wife. And that's what God is responding to, not necessarily just what we pray with our mouth. I don't know if that sounds weird to you or not, but... I think that's how the Lord works. The Bible, Psalm 36 says, God gives us the desires of our hearts. And, and sometimes we just don't really know what those desires are. And we say what we think, but it's not really what's in there. And God knows what we're trying to communicate, and that's what he's answering. He's answering the desires of your heart, the cries of your heart, even if you're not verbalizing it quite right. The other thing, sometimes I think this whole idea of God not answering prayer, that's what we talked about last week about really just Trust in God's goodness. When we talk about prayer, a lot of times faith is used. And, well, if I had more faith, then this would have happened. Or if I had more faith, that would have happened. And Jesus doesn't do that. He never beats anybody up about their lack of faith in terms of when he's ministering to them. Faith is belief. It's believing God for things, but it's also trust. It's resting in him. And we need both of those if we're going to pray for stuff, especially the kind of stuff that, we're talking about here with cities and all of this jazz going on. When you're praying for things that are significant, it requires faith. You have to believe God for things that you can't yet see and at the same time trust and rest in his goodness in terms of his timing and what he does and does not answer. And so you kind of need both sides of the coin. You don't want to be passive and say, well, God, whatever you will, that's what I want. That's a safe prayer. I don't think it's a good one. He wants to engage you. Don't you hate it when every time you ask somebody where you want to go to eat and they just say, I don't care, you pick? That's what we're saying. God, it's your will. Whatever you pick, God, whatever you pick. He's given you a brain. He's given you a heart. His Holy Spirit lives in you. What do you pick? He's asking for you to pick. He's remaining before you. So we don't want to be passive and just say, well, God, whatever you want. But at the same time, we don't want to be arrogant and say, well, this is what I want and this is what I want and give it to me now and this is... There's a, two sides of the coin. We want, to be, we want to believe God for the things that we think he's doing either through the word or things he's put in your heart. We want to believe him for that and pursue those things. And at the same time, we want to rest in his goodness to accomplish his purposes in his way and in his time. Got that? Good. Um, Esther. I don't know if any of you have read Esther. It's the only book in the Bible that never referred. God is not mentioned in Esther. Prayer is not mentioned in Esper, Esther. Fasting is mentioned twice. That's really the only religious activity in Esther. But I think what does answered prayer look like? It's the book of Esther. 
that's answered prayer, even though prayer is never mentioned. It would be kind of like next week, Memorial Day, some of you all are going to go to the lake. If you see the wake of a boat and you don't see the boat, you know a boat's been there because there's a wake. And there's a wake that answered prayer leaves, even if you don't see the fact that prayers have been prayed. Esther's set in like um, the 480s, 470s B.C., the Jews have been dispersed. They're not living in Jerusalem anymore. They've all been kicked out. Um, they're under the control of the Persians, and the king is a guy named Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S. That's a great name. Some of you pregnant ladies, we probably need to bring back some of those. So Xerxes, and Esther's name is actually Hadassah. That's another one I would recommend as well. So you've got King Xerxes has a banquet. It's a huge banquet. And at the end of the banquet, he has another banquet for a week. And he's had some to drink, and he's got all of his guys around, and he has a beautiful queen named Vashti, another name. And so he says, bring me Vashti. And he wants to kind of parade her around so everybody can see how hot she is. Vashti doesn't want to come. I guess she doesn't want to be a piece of meat. So she says no. And the king is totally humiliated in front of all these guys. He said, I'm going to bring my woman out here, and she doesn't come. And so his counselors, his tight seven, say, she can't, you can't let her do this because all the other women are going to find out and then they're going to start doing that to their husbands. So it's really about them. You can't let Vashti say no to you or every other woman is going to start saying no to their husband when they ask them for things. So you need to set her aside and go find you a new queen. So that's what they do. They kind of, he doesn't kill Vashti. He just puts her into another palace and says, you can't, we're not, I'm not going to see you. Anymore, She actually does come back into the scene way later, but um, I'm not going to see you anymore. And then after he's mourned for her, it says, the king thought about Vashti, and these seven brilliant guys say, we need to go find you a new queen. So round up all the pretty virgins in the kingdom, and we'll bring them here, and you can see who you like the best. And the guy, of course, says, well, that's a great idea. So they go around and round up all these folks, and one of the people they round up is Esther. And she's a Jew, and uh, her cousin is Mordecai, and he's kind of high up in the Persian court. I don't know how high up, but he has some access. And Mordecai says, don't tell him you're a Jew. And he, she says, okay. So she goes, and she's part of this um, harem, and she gets a year's worth of beauty treatments, and she goes into the king, and he likes her, so she becomes the queen. Everything's good. So Esther's the queen. She's a Jew. Nobody knows that she's a Jew. She has regular contact with Mordecai, who's her cousin. Now, there's a dude named Haman, who also is really high up, in the court. He's actually probably second in command. He's the favored prince of Xerxes. And he has a huge ego. Everywhere he goes, everybody kneels down and, oh, Haman's, you know, the stuff. Except Mordecai. He won't do it. He won't kneel. He won't bow down. He won't give Haman any honor. Now, everyone else in the kingdom will. This one guy won't. Haman has such a big ego. He's fixated on Mordecai. He gets so frustrated. He says, what? He's, he's killing me. He's, what am I supposed to do with him? Freeze frame. There's um, Mordecai's hanging out around the gates one day, and he hears two guards planning an assassination of Xerxes. And so he tells Esther, who tells the king, who gives, and when Esther's telling the king, she credits Mordecai. Mordecai heard this plot. These two guys were going to assassinate you. And they investigate, and it's true, and that's written in the book of the king. Freeze back to Haman. So we've got this story with Mordecai. Now Haman's frustrated. He's like, what can I do? And he's from a, a race, I think they're the Amorites, who hate the Jews and have hated the Jews for a really long time. He says, you know what, it's not enough for me to kill Mordecai, I'm wiping out all of them. So he goes to the king and says, there's this group of people in your kingdom, they don't do what everybody else does, can I kill them? And the king says, okay. 
And so they set a day, March 7th, to, it's about a year wait, that they're going to kill all the Jews in the Persian kingdom. And they write out a little edict and send out a law to all the different provinces and all the different languages that says, on this date, anybody can go after the Jews and kill them and take their stuff. So that's the edict. Obviously, the Jews are upset. Mordecai hears about it. He mourns, and Esther sees him and says, what's going on with Mordecai? She sends a messenger out. Mordecai tells her what's going on. This messenger comes back and says, Esther, you've got to do something. The reason, it could very well be, the reason you're the queen is to save us. It's for such a time as this. The reason you're where you are is to help us through this. And Esther says, you don't understand. I hadn't seen the king in a month, and you can't just show up. If he doesn't invite you in, and you show up, and he doesn't want to see you, you you get killed. That's how it is. And he hasn't asked to see me in a month. I can't just go barging in there saying, what have you done with, with the Jews? And again, Mordecai says, listen, don't think you're going to be the only one who's saved. If we're going to be okay. God's going to use you or he's going to use someone else. Esther says, well, why don't you guys fast for me for three days? I'm going to fast as well. The assumption is that there's prayer. It's not mentioned. So three days pass, and Esther goes to the king. And the big deal, if the king holds out his scepter to you, then you can come in. So Esther shows up looking beautiful, and the king holds out his scepter Esther, I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. And she says, I want you and Haman to come to a banquet. Okay. So they come to the banquet. They do all this stuff. She's got a nice banquet. They're at the banquet. The king says, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. And Esther says, I want you and Haman to come to a banquet with me again tomorrow. So Haman leaves, and he's feeling good because out of everyone in the kingdom, only two people got invited to the banquet, the king and him. He passes by Mordecai, who doesn't bow down. And he gets all riled up, goes home, starts griping to his wife, who gives him the great idea, build a gallows 75 feet high. That's what you hang somebody for. And let's get Mordecai hung on that. That way you can go to the party tomorrow and just feel good about yourself. Great idea. So they build this thing 75 feet high. Nighttime. The king can't sleep. So when you can't sleep, you read something boring. So they have the annals of the king brought in, and they start reading. And they just happen to open to the page where Mordecai uncovers this plot to assassinate the king. And he reads that, and the king's like, wow, what, what do we do for that guy? How do we honor him? How do we reward him? And they said, you didn't do anything. Haman comes walking in at this very moment that this is being read, and he's going to ask the king to let him go have Mordecai hung. He walks in, and the king says, oh, Haman, perfect, just the guy I wanted to see. What should be done for someone the king wants to honor? And of course, Haman's thinking, well, that's me. And he says... Out of everything you can pick, I don't know why you picked this, let him ride one of your horses and wear one of your robes and walk up and down the street. You'd think maybe money or something like but no. He wants to ride one of his horses and wear one of his robes and be paraded up and down the street with a prince saying, here is one the king honors. And the king says, that's a great idea. Why don't you do that for Mordecai? Haman is obviously distraught, goes home, tells his wife, and his wife's like, you know, he's a Jew, you're in trouble is basically what she says to him, that, that you did this to a Jew and it looks like they're going to be your downfall. So she's washing her hands of Haman. Very quickly, Haman gets Mordecai, parades him through the street, totally ashamed. As soon as he gets home, the um, people come to bring him to the banquet with Xerxes and Esther, and they're in this banquet. The king does the whole deal. What do you want, Esther, up to half your kingdom? And she says, that I wouldn't even be asking you this if, if somebody was just trying to put us in slavery, but there's someone 
who's trying to kill me and my people. Remember, nobody knows Esther's a Jew. Someone's trying to kill me and my people, and I just want you to save our life. And the king's hot. And he says, who is it? And she says, it's him. It's Haman. And the king goes nuts and has to go outside to cool off. And while he's outside cooling off, Haman is so upset about what's about to happen, he kind of approaches Esther to try to get her to speak, give some good words to the king, and he's touching her in some way, and the king comes back in and says, so, not only are you trying to kill her, you're trying to molest her in my room as well. And he's hot, and one of his guys says, you know what, Haman built a gallows behind his house. And the king says, great idea, why don't you hang him on it? (laughs) So, they do. So, Haman's killed, and then Mordecai kind of comes into the picture, and they write an edict which says the Jews can defend themselves on this particular day, and they do, and the Jews win, and all of those kind of things. The point, I think, out of all of that is God's never mentioned. There's no mention of prayer, but there are all these coincidences. Here's a few that I've read. Just a few coincidences that I picked up. The king, this is just from one chapter. The king is not able to sleep on this particular night. He happened to ask that they read him out of everything that he could have done that night. He said, why don't you read me this book? They just happen to read from the section that talks about Mordecai. He happens to say, you know what, maybe we should do something for Mordecai. Haman happens to walk in at the point that he's saying maybe we should do something for Mordecai. All that just happens. It's just coincidence. There's no sense of God in that at all. There are other things with the stuff, the way Esther became king, the way Esther became the queen. Vashti happens to refuse. Maybe that would be normal for a woman to do that. Out of all the women in the world, in this kingdom, they chose Esther. Persian kings were supposed to marry one of seven, a woman from one of seven families. Esther was not in one of those families. And those guys just decided this one time, why don't we just kind of do free agency and see who all we can get in? And it just happens to be Esther. Esther happens to receive the king's favor when she goes back after he hasn't asked to see her for a month. Mordecai happens to say, you know what, never tell anyone you're a Jew. Let's just keep that a secret. Coincidence after coincidence after coincidence that leads to the deliverance of an entire people. That's the weight of answered prayer. That's what answered prayer looks like. Some people can say it's just coincidence. Sometimes it's not, what, what glasses are you wearing? Some people would say, you know, that's just a coincidence. All that stuff just happened to fall into place. I say, if there's a wake, there, there was a boat there. And it was God. He moved through all of these circumstances to accomplish his purposes because Mordecai was willing and Esther was willing and however many hundreds of thousands up to millions of Jews were willing to pray and fast for God's purposes because they understood their role in what was going on. Can you ever feel more helpless? If a king in Persia said something and sealed it with this ring, it could not be undone. The king could not undo it. He can't say, my bad, or whatever. It's done. Once he said the Jews are going to be wiped out, you can go after the Jews on March 7th, he couldn't go back and undo that. It was against the law. Is there a more hopeless situation when the king says something, and even if you can convince him he was wrong, he can't fix it. He can't take it away. He had to write a new law that said the Jews could defend themselves, and that's how they got around that. And that's where the Jews were. And yet they believed and they prayed. And it's not in the Bible, but I see a wake of answered prayer. And God invites us into that same thing. 
doesn't matter if you're eloquent. doesn't matter if you feel like you've got the right words. It doesn't matter if you can't go very long before you get tired. It doesn't matter if you get distracted. Whatever. You're part of the family. And the family business is community transformation. There are things God wants to do in this city and in this world. And you have a seat at the table if you're one of his children. And God is standing before you. And he's waiting on you to ask. And you're not going to screw it up. You're not. If you're afraid you're going to screw it up, always pray for things that make God look better. As long as you pray for things that increase his glory, you're going to be okay. You can't go wrong. You can't go wrong if you base your prayers on his character and the ultimate goal of your prayers is that God gets more glory. You can't miss that. And so he's standing there saying, are y'all going to participate or not? If you will, then I will. The fate of two cities was in the hands of Abraham. Now, they did get destroyed because there weren't ten. I wonder what would have happened if Abraham went one more time and said, what if there were just five people? I think God would have said, okay. He might not have, but I wonder. Abraham stopped, not God. And I wonder with us if sometimes things aren't happening just because we haven't asked, because we feel like we're pushing too hard or we're, God's got steam coming out of his ears and he's ready to move on to the next thing. Or we say, you know what, it's, just, it's God's will and we're just going to sit back and see what happens. And he's saying, guys, I've given you a brain, I've given you a heart, my spirit lives in you. Engage me on these things. Let's pray. Unless you guys can come back up. I feel like we've talked about this um, several times, just the privilege of our position as your children. And I pray for all of us that we would see what that is, that the light would go on in all of our hearts, that we would realize our role as your kids and the role we have kind of in this family business of seeing your work done in our families and neighborhoods and cities and, and nations even. And God, I want to pray uh, especially for people today who maybe have had something that they've been praying for for a while and they're just not seeing any action at all. And they're starting to get frustrated. Lord, I pray for your encouragement in that situation. Lord, that you would give us the perseverance to stick with things that you've put in our heart. Lord, that we would not, um, that we would not give up until you answer one way or the other. God, I pray also for those of us, maybe you have things going on that we just haven't prayed about because it seems, honestly, it just seems too hopeless to even pray about. And I pray this morning that you would give us hope that you can move mountains, that you can work even in these situations that look totally beyond reach. So I pray, Father, now that you would send your spirit to encourage us in prayer. Um, to bring movement to things that we haven't seen, to bring comfort to those, again, who maybe are just frustrated with a lack of results. Uh, We're going to have some ministry teams up front, and at least here at the beginning,